You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to brilliant, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Rose Linehan. Rose is a postdoctoral fellow in the philosophy department at UCLA. Her research is in social and political philosophy, especially critical philosophy of race and the political economy of race. In addition to being a philosopher, she also does on the ground work around housing justice. In this episode, we talk about housing justice, housing as a right, tenant unions, gentrification, the crisis of housing, and so much more. Hello, Rose, and welcome to the Omni Podcast. How are you today? Hey, bud. Great to talk to you. I'm doing okay. <laughs> doing okay. That's, that's inside my apartment. You know, that's the that's the, the the best that we can wish for. As long as you're doing okay, that's all. Um, that's all I'm I'm concerned about. So let me ask you this question, Rose. How did you get interested in philosophy? So I went to this high school in Chicago that was a magnet school that had just opened. And I think the way that they got all the teachers to come from the other schools was by telling them they could teach whatever they wanted on Thursdays. So we had half days on Thursdays where people did like cake decorating and whatever. (laughs) And uh, one of my teachers did a um, like a science fiction and philosophy class. And he had actually dropped out of philosophy grad school to be a math teacher. And it was just great. And I really liked it. And I started taking philosophy classes first semester freshman year of college and declared my major like right away. So I want to know, I, I want to know what exactly was the high school class was about. So what was he, what was he talking about? Do you remember? I know it was such a long time ago, Rose. Was, do, you, <laughs> do you, do you remember like some of the things that you all talked about in the yeah, class? I mean, we read like Philip K. Dick stories, I think. So just, you know, like classic philosophy, sci-fi stuff that raised thought experiment. I think it was the first kind of exposure I had to, um, that you could bring philosophical concepts to bear uh, or that you could apply philosophical concepts in thinking about fiction or in like playing with reality and memory and blah, blah, blah. And I think he just, you know, he'd been to philosophy grad school, so he had a a grasp on a lot of the concepts. I, I remember that he taught us what utilitarianism was. And I thought, like, oh, what a nice, neat way of solving moral problems. Now I think, now that's not <laughs> my, my view. But at the time, I, I thought it was just, you know, I mean, I think it's amazing how little exposure high school kids have to philosophy when they're, they have so many philosophical questions and no one else in their life is like validating those questions and telling them to explore them. So it was great. He was a great teacher. Were you, were you a philosophy major? Yeah. Ah. Okay, so you knew you knew right afterwards that that's what you were gonna was gonna do. What was the deciding factor for you as far as going to grad school? Did you have Did you have other considerations, or was it like, listen, I was hooked from that sci-fi <laughs> class. I've been hooked ever since. Was it anybody else or any other discipline or profession that was trying to get your attention? I was definitely very unsure about going to philosophy grad school. I think I felt like if I didn't do it, I would always wonder, and there was nothing else that I felt super compelled by. I had written my undergraduate thesis on Wittgenstein. And I loved Wittgenstein. And I was 
you know, I thought I could spend a bunch more time. And then I didn't work on Wittgenstein at all in grad school. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, but I mean, I had a like a rocky road. I mean, I dropped out of grad school for a year or I took a year off, quote unquote. I didn't know if I was coming back. Um, and I taught high school for a year and then I did end up coming back. When you when you taught a year for high school, I, I, I need to ask you this. Did you give back? Did you did you did you do the same thing that your former high school teacher did, did for you for you as far as the students is concerned? Did you did you sprinkle in some philosophy in any of those courses to, to get them addicted? Totally. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I think any of those students would tell you it was a pretty freewheeling thing. <laughs> I taught one of the classes I taught was statistics and it was like a, it was a one semester college course, but taught over the course of a year. So, so frankly, we had some extra time. Uh, and so we just, yeah, I just taught them some philosophy. They were like second semester seniors by the end. And we're, you know, very glad to have a chance to think about all these other questions. And so, yeah, it was really fun. Well, you just received a PhD and, and your dissertation was on racial exploitation, correct? And But in addition to that work, you also, academic work, you also do a lot of work on the ground around housing justice, um, organizing, et cetera, et cetera. So I kind of, in, in so many ways, I mean, you may not take the two as merging together, but I do want to talk about, I mean, I, I do want to talk about that ladder, that ladder work, because um, I, find, I find that fascinating. There's a lot of things that I just don't know about housing justice and what people are, are doing on the ground um, to ensure it and ways for us to kind of kind of think about it. And, and so that's kind of what I want to base this discussion on. So, so let's first begin with this question. One might think that the function of housing is to provide shelter, right? Everybody needs shelter. But there are other functions that housing fulfill. And I wonder if you can share with us those other functions. Sure. So I think the the easiest way to see all the functions that housing provides is to think about the things that unhoused people don't have access to. So, you know, I live in L.A. There's a huge population of unhoused homeless people and, uh, you know, they don't have privacy for the most part. They don't have uh, regular places to shower and cook. They're subject to constant harassment. They don't really have control over any particular space. Uh, you know, they're subject to encampment sweeps regularly. They also don't really have a certain kind of civic standing. Um, you know, it's very hard to vote if you don't have an address. It's, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's very hard to do if you don't have an address. But uh, it's very hard to get a job, you know, if you can't say where you live. And so those are all, you know, many, many functions beyond just the actual shelter. You know, some people who are unhoused do have shelter. They live in tents. The, the shelter is inadequate because, inadequate because, you know, when it rains, it's just a total disaster. But, but yeah, there's, there's so many basic sort of human needs that are unmet. And I think it's also really important to say, you know, one function that, that housing has right now is that uh, it's a place to store money. It's a very, very valuable financial asset. It's a place, you know, it's a, people use housing to diversify their portfolios. And that particular function of housing is is especially now sort of swamping or taking precedence over all the other functions. So I think, you know, some people talk about like the hyper commodification of housing or the tyranny of exchange value in housing. But basically the fact that the financial value of housing determines what gets produced and how housing gets distributed as opposed to the needs, you know, people's actual need for shelter, people's need for the, the use values that housing provides, or housing as a home, it's, it's a financial asset. And 
you know, like in New York, for example, there's there's sections of Manhattan where something like um, 50% of the units are vacant um, because they're just being held as financial assets. So you have this incredibly valuable real estate sitting empty while there are homeless people over the city. You mentioned housing being kind of a need, housing being uh, an asset. Would you describe housing as a right? And if, if so, why? If not, tell us why. So there's status of housing as a right is really interesting. The Universal Declaration of, of, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights says that there should be a right to adequate housing. In general, there's almost no jurisdictions where a right to shelter or right to housing are recognized. And even the places that sort of say that don't actually succeed in providing that as a genuine right. But it is basically a basically all tenants movements um, say that housing is a human right. And I think what we mean by that is not anything very uh, philosophically complex. (laughs) It's just basically the world should be such that everyone has housing. Everyone deserves housing. It's a matter of basic material dignity, you know, that people, people who are unhoused are being wronged. People who live in unsafe housing are being wronged and we should, the world could be different and we should make it different. So you mentioned tenant unions and for some people that may sound strange because I think we're familiar with worker unions, although in some ways, I don't know if that's going in or going out. <laughs> Depends on what's <laughs> happening. Um, but most people are familiar with workers unions, but not necessarily tenant unions. And I, and I wonder if you can describe for us how what is what are ten, tenant unions? How, how do they fight against oppressive housing conditions? How do they advocate for better housing conditions? So basically, a tenants union is a collection of tenants fighting together. And, you know, it's, it's different from workers unions in that there's not really like national legal infrastructure about unions and there's not sort of formal giant union, ten, unions of tenants in the, in the way that there are like SEIU or Unite Here or anything like that. But basically the point of a tenants union is to organize tenants together to defend themselves and to defend each other as a class and to build tenant power. So just like in a workplace, you know, you, the point of having a workers union, a labor union, is that there's a, a class conflict between the workers and the owners. So the workers have an interest in higher pay and in better working conditions and in better protections and ultimately in controlling their workplaces democratically. And the owners have conflicting class interests. So their interests are in keeping labor costs as low as possible in providing as few benefits as they can get away with, in maintaining control, you know, as much control over the work process as possible to extract as much profit as they can from the workers. So their interests are just in conflict. And the basic idea of a tenants union is that, you know, the tenants' interests are in conflict with um, landlords' interests. And, you know, it's, I mean, this is very, everybody sort of knows this without um, putting it into practice. So for example, when I would go around trying to get people interested in joining a tenants union in Boston. I was at the, um, the, I remember this very clearly. I was at the Dorchester day parade in Boston and I was just talking to people who were at the parade. And I said to somebody like, we're trying to organize around the gentrification and the rising rents. And he was like, Oh, well, I'm a property owner. So, so that's good for me. I'm, I, you know, I'm not your, I'm not your, <laughs> I'm not your guy. Uh, cause for me, property values going up is what I want. <laughs> so you know, it's just very, very clear, conflicting interests. And, you know, landlords as a class are super organized. They're 
there's property owners associations, there's, you know, huge national infrastructure, the national associations of realtors, you know, all this stuff that, that fight to protect landlords' interests and property owners' interests. And those are the people who have the most power in cities. And those are the people who are the sort of major um, political donors and tenants are disorganized. And because we're disorganized and because we don't fight together for the most part, you know, we, we, things are not so good for us. And we're paying a, a ton of money in rent and, you know, people are subject to all kinds of unsafe conditions and harassment and, and everything. So, so yeah. So the point of tenants unions is basically to allow tenants to fight together for power. So you, you talked about how the, the tenant and the, the landlord, their interests are in conflict. And I, I wonder if does that statement itself have any kind of more valence. Because it could be the case. Yes, it is. It is indeed the case that our, our, our interests are in conflict, but there's nothing wrong with that per se. So here's, here's an example. So I'm, uh, I'm new to California, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm still a renter. And I would like to think that my sole landlord, <laughs> you know, we get along well, you know, uh, I would like to think that they, you know. Wait, did you say what's your, your sole landlord? My sole landlord. So my, my landlord is, is a private a, a private owner and, and this is the only property that they own. Oh, got it, got it. Okay. Yeah, and so I, I would like I thought to you think, meant like soulmate. No, soul no, no. Mate. I was like, what is that? <laughs> no, no. And and so I would like to think, you know what? We're 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 good. We're good. Yes, we may have conflict and interest. I pay rent. She wants the rent, right? But there's nothing yeah. wrong with that. What would you say? What would you say about that? Well, I just think. I mean, there's yeah, there's plenty of landlords who are individually nice people, and <laughs> you know that's fine. I think, but I think it's just a structural thing. It's like. She owns property and because she owns property, she, you know, draw, collects rent from you. So she's using your rent to build equity. You know, you're getting a short-term benefit. You're paying however much money for the next month. Um, and that money is just gone. Like when the month is over, it's gone. She has that money now. She's building equity in her property. She's going to own this incredibly valuable asset at the end, you know, of the whole process. She's maybe going to have capital to invest in the next property or whatever. And I just think that's structurally not how it should be. Okay, so now that I'm depressed about my economic situation, um, <laughs> what are on, 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 talking about tenant unions? What are tenant unions currently doing right now during the the Corona pandemic? I've seen, I mean, I've seen several stuff on, on, online alluding to this, mostly as a result of, of following you. But I've also so this is kind of a two part question. So what are they doing now? But I also wonder is it is it should we expect for them to do something now? So here's one of the things that I was thinking about. So you have, so take my example of, and my landlord does not listen to this podcast. So I'm just saying, um, so take for example, uh, my landlord, like I said, I'm the only, you know, this is the only, only property that she owns. And in some ways, I mean, she has to pay, the, pay the, pay, pay the, the bank, right. Based on the loan. And so she, in, in some ways she also needs my money in order to, to do just that. And so to suggest that she ought to be sympathetic, one might say, suggest that she ought to be sympathetic, right? And which I should not pay rent this month because of the pandemic. In some ways we have to think about, well, if her loan is still due, then that's also going to put her into a bind. So in some ways, two things, what are tenant unions currently doing right now? And I also wanted to the extent of how might we imagine landlords participate in any kind of just practices, also given what the economy requires of them. Okay, so let me start first with what tenants unions are doing in general and, and right now. So I'm a member of the LA Tenants Union, which um, is the biggest tenants union in the country right now. They only started five years ago. I only moved to LA six months ago. So it's very, it's very exciting to be working with them. 
But basically, the LA Tennis Union is divided into 12 local chapters. And we meet every right now we're meeting every week because of what's going on. But normally, we meet every two weeks and tenants in crisis come to us when they get rent increases they can't afford, when people are trying to evict them, whatever kind of, you know, when they're subject to harassment, when people won't make repairs. And we basically support them, support them sometimes and helping them find some kind of legal help or doing court support, but more often providing solidarity and advice and, and trying to organize together, help them organize their buildings to um, have a tenants association in their building that can then uh, put pressure on the landlord to get the landlord to do something or to compromise in some way or negotiate. Right now, you know, things are things are insane right now. We I've never gotten so many emails in my life. It's it's totally overwhelming because today's April 2nd, so rent was due yesterday April 1st. You know, this was I think most people started losing their income in early March, so it was the first rent due day that a ton of people, a ton of people had just suddenly lost all of their income. So, you know, all across the internet, there have been, there's been some stuff about rent strikes and a lot of people don't really know what that means, but they they think, yeah, things are bad right now. I lost all my income. I shouldn't have to pay rent. And what the LA Tenants Union doing, what the LA Tenants Union is doing is that we have a food, not rent campaign where basically we're trying to organize all these people who are suddenly in the same situation. So, you know, normally we're trying to organize people who can't pay rent or who got a rent increase they can't afford or whatever. Now, suddenly, that's a, a much, much, much larger portion of the city. People who you know, would normally be considered middle class and have pretty stable incomes are now, have now just lost all of their income. They just, you know, <laughs> the, the normal expectation that they, you know, they, yeah, it's all gone <laughs> all of a sudden. And so, you know, there's a lot of people who can maybe pay rent for this month, but they can't also pay rent for May. So they're looking ahead, like, where is my next income coming from? I don't see this ending, you know, in the next couple of weeks. Uh, I don't know if my restaurant's going to reopen or not. You know, every there's now six six and a half unemployment claims in the past couple of weeks. So there's all these other people looking for jobs too. So you know, my choice is to pay an, an enormous amount of money, you know, especially in LA, to my landlord, and then be left with nothing for for food or prescriptions or all the other stuff I need, and not know where my next income is coming from, or to keep my rent. So we're trying to help people feel comfortable, supported in deciding to keep their rent. And, and we're basically trying to organize all these people to exert political pressure on the city council. So right now, they've passed pretty, pretty weak protections. There's a thing that they're calling an eviction moratorium. It's not actually an eviction moratorium, which is a problem. But what we, what we think that they should pass is some kind of rent forgiveness. So right now, people can pay, you know, there's some kind of law where they don't ha- they can't be evicted for not paying rent if they can show that they're not paying rent because of the virus but then they have to pay that rent back within a certain amount of time and you know the entire we have no idea what's going to happen with the economy but it's very hard to imagine that if people can't pay rent right now and they don't get their jobs back for a couple months that they're going to suddenly come into $15,000 and be able to pay all this rent debt back in the next couple of months so you're just as you know, you're just basically deferring the evictions. You're saying like, yeah, people aren't going to get evicted right now, but <laughs> but then all these evictions are just going to be pushed forward a couple of months to when all these people have this debt that they can't pay. We're trying to organize all these tenants who are in this situation to and sort of act collectively to put pressure on the city council and on the mayor and on the governor to support tenants to pass better legislation and you know, and also, you know, we just want to build the tenants union. In general, we think 
tenants are better off when the tenants movement is stronger. And if we had, you know, if we had been even bigger before this, then we would have had more power going into the situation. So, you know, we're always just trying to build power by getting more people to join and getting more people more involved. And what would you say about that second question? Okay. So, which is basically like, as a, what should I do if, you know, if I just, if I choose not to pay my rent, I'm putting my landlord in some kind of bad situation. Is that basically the idea? Yeah, I mean, yeah. What, what, what can we, what can we expect in, as, as just responses when, or, or, or mercy or in, in relationship to forgiveness when it's not as if, yeah, when it's all these other kind of economic uh, problems that may pose on, on other individual um, owners? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think di- there's different landlords in all kinds of different situations. Right, so right. I think, I mean, one thing is that a lot of places have passed like mortgage forgiveness or mortgage suspensions. So they're giving a break to landlords, but they're not giving a break to tenants. So right. okay. for a lot of people, they don't have to pay their mortgage this month, but they're still collecting rent. So they're actually profiting off of the crisis while the money is just getting sucked out of tenants. I mean, and that's partly, you know, goes back to the landlords being way more organized. Like the the mortgage suspension got passed really quickly, um, but that didn't happen for rent, you know. But also I think, yeah, I mean, you know, there of course you're in a in a somewhat different situation if, you know, you're living with, let's say, an elderly senior who's the landlord who can't work and your rent is their only income versus you live in these buildings of 150 units that are owned by some LLC that are by some whatever that are owned by Blackstone or something like that. And but I think in general, I mean, I think it's important not to think about it as a question of individual morality, but to think about it as a question of political power. And I think in general, landlords get taken care of and property owners get taken care of. And so, you know, maybe in particular situations, it's it's morally complicated. But I think for the most part, for the most part, they use that kind of language <laughs> to make tenants forget about their own interests and the fact that they share so many interests and that and that so many landlords are, you know, structurally exploiting tenants. Rose, what, what drew you to this work? What drew you to, to, to work with the unions? So I had a good friend who whose cousin, my best friend's cousin, um, joined this group called the Philly Socialists in 2012. So this <laughs> was like, well, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this was, you know, well before the Bernie kind of DSA socialist wave. And one of the first things that the Philly Socialists did was to start a tenants union, the Philly Tenants Union. So, you know, in like 2013 or 2014, I was hearing about the work that they were doing and just feeling like, there are people who are who have identified a problem and are uh, actually doing stuff. It just seemed like they had their heads on straight about what was important. So I think you know, since I'm since I'm on a philosophy podcast, I can say um, I think I had an existential crisis. <laughs> okay, and I think I just felt you know I felt so depressed about the world. I felt so angry all the time. I would get so I would get like waves of rage about how bad things were in the world and feeling like, why is everyone acting like things are normal and things are fine when, when things are so bad. And then I had, had this example of this, of these people who were doing work I thought was really admirable. So I, I was interested in getting involved. I mean, there wasn't a group like that or I, and I probably wasn't really like politically ready to do that at that time. But I think when I took the year off teaching high school, I, I first became, when I got back, I first joined a anti-racist group and then through that group started doing housing justice, like housing justice as racial justice kind of work and got involved with a, a 
tenants' rights nonprofit in Boston called City Life Vita Urbana, which organizes tenants. And I learned a ton from them and got really excited about organizing. It just felt like being useful. <laughs> you know, I felt like finally I know what to do with myself. I feel like what I'm doing is important. I feel like there's a, you know, it matters whether I call this person back. It matters whether we show up and support this person in court. And so it was just very grounding. And, and it just became a huge part of my life um, really quickly. And I got really involved really quickly. And then I was doing it through Boston DSA. And then I left Boston DSA and was so, and then blah, blah, blah. But eventually now I moved to LA. And since I've been in LA, I've been super involved with the LA Tenants Union, which is, and it's so cool because they're so big and there's so many experienced people. I mean, there's, there's people who are like in their seventies who helped start the LA Tenants Union who will say things like, oh, when I did civil rights organizing in the 60s, like blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, when I was involved in ACT UP in the 90s. So just people that have so much experience and are so thoughtful and committed. It's just really, really great to work with them. Wow. Well, what are some of the things, you know, speaking of working with these individuals, what, what are some of the things or, or lessons you've learned in your work with, with tenant unions? Just by following you on social media, I've learned <laughs> a, a lot, a, a lot of stuff that I didn't know before as a result of you posting. But I, but I wonder more intimately, you know, what had you learned? Yeah, I mean, I think partly I've partly I've just had amazing experiences. Like I feel this kind of connection to and solidarity with with people who, you know, superficially, I don't have that much in common with. I've had really powerful, beautiful experiences with them. But I think I mean, I think practically, like the the mistreatment of poor people in this country, just to see it so viscerally. So for example, we in the LA Tenants Union recently, there's a there, one of the locals is working with a giant building called Hillside Villa. And one of the tenants there is in a rent controlled unit. They've been there for several decades, I think. And their income is like 900 something dollars a month. So less than $12,000 a year. And their rent was like $700 a month. And they got a rent increase. You're, you know, you're allowed to get a certain amount of a rent increase, even if you're in rent control. And their rent went up to $740 and they couldn't pay it because their income was 900 something dollars. So they couldn't, you know, that $38 a month or whatever was actually, they couldn't pay it. And this, the landlord, you know, was going to evict them over $266. This is a, I think an elderly woman who had lived in the same place for decades. She was going to be evicted over $266. Wow. And there's literally nowhere, you know, if she was evicted, her income is less than $1,000 a month. So she, how is she supposed to pay for moving expenses, for a security deposit, for first and last month? Like, there's just no way. That's, that is an eviction into homelessness. And, you know, that's not a, that's just the landlord's property right. That's, you know, if you don't pay the rent, <laughs> you get evicted. And, and, you know, I think some people say like these corrupt landlords or these bad landlords, it's like that, that is not unusual. That is just the way it works. And, and they have an interest, you know, especially in LA, it's really when you, when a, when a rent controlled unit goes back on the market, it goes back up to market rate rent. So this was a two bedroom apartment that was renting for 700 something dollars. If it went back on the market, it would be two, two or $3,000. So they have a, an enormous financial incentive in cruelly evicting this, this woman from her apartment. And, you know, and that's just, that's just totally par for the, I've seen so much stuff like that. I mean, I saw there was an elderly man I knew in Boston who 
he had had a stroke and lost his job. So his, you know, he had no income all of a sudden. And he was going to be evicted from his longtime apartment over again, something like $200. And, you know, it's just, it's just disgusting. So that's something I've learned. (laughs) And, and I think also, you know, also just that, that the main power that we have as tenants is each other. You know, people will sometimes, when people first join the tenants union and they hear some of these stories, they're like, isn't that illegal? And it's, and sometimes it is illegal. You know, most of the time it's not, unfortunately, like very horrible things are still legal, but even when it is illegal, it's like, yeah. And how, okay. But now what people do illegal things all the time, but if there's, you know, it's very hard to get the city to enforce enforce laws against landlords when they're being negligent or when they're harassing tenants. You know, you can hire a lawyer if you can afford to hire a lawyer, but a lot of people can't. So people have this idea that the state is going to protect us or that, you know, the department, the housing department is going to fix everything or something. And it's like, no, it just comes down to you and, and this other body of people who have signed up to be in solidarity with each other. So, and, you know, yeah. And that's, I guess, where the, where the comes back to the beautiful experiences <laughs> that I started about talking about. So I'm going to, I'm going to throw out some, some terms and these are terms that I think listeners will be familiar with. And I want you to tell me how have they helped solve housing problems and where do you think they fall short of doing so? All right. Yeah. So the first term public housing. So I think public housing means so many different things and how it's happened in so many different places you know, varies a ton. I think there's some sort of tenant fights that have ended in winning good public housing. Um, And I think good public housing can be a really amazing, great thing. In the United States, you know, they've been defunding public housing for decades. So a lot of public housing is in horrible condition. And the people who live in public housing are often subject to, you know, they're, they're managed by the state in this really horrible way you know, they're sort of means tested constantly and people can sort of move them at will um, when they want them to go to a different apartment. So they just don't have a lot of control over their housing at the moment. But there have been other times and other periods when when public housing was much better and it was it was funded better and and it wasn't as stigmatized. And so for my friends um, have a, a podcast called the People's History Podcast, I think, and they have a series of episodes about public housing development in Boston and sort of how it was really nice when it was first built and then the kind of general neglect that happened over the over the following decades and then that got privatized and you know same same story everywhere so i think i think sometimes public housing can be really great i think it depends it depends a lot on the way that the the state is involved and the kind of state interference that people are subject to sometimes we in the in the tenants movement, we use the term social housing, which is basically to indicate that people have control over the housing. The people who live in the housing have control over it. Um, so it's not like a board of director directors at a nonprofit administering it, or it's not the city, but it's the people who actually live there. I think one one other thing that's really worth looking into if people are interested in this is the kind of uh, public housing developments that were built in Red Vienna in socialist Vienna. Um, in the 20s. So at, they built this, they did a ton of, of housing development and people's rent went from something like 30% of their income to 4% of their income. Oh, wow. It employed a ton of people. It was be- It's beautiful housing. And now it's still the case that something like 60% of residents of Vienna live in this public housing. So it's just, they do it 
totally, totally differently from how we do it here. And it's, it's not kind of what you do when you can't afford private housing. It's a, it's a totally good alternative that people are happy to do. And if we would fund it better, that would, that would help. Okay. So here's a second term. And I think this is very much connected. And I wonder if you would take, uh, consider rent control to be under this, under this category, but affordable housing. So let me come back to the rent control thing in a second. Affordable housing is such an abused term. Um, <laughs> there's actually even in the, in the LA Tenants Union, there's a working group called um, the Affordable Housing is a Scam Working Group. <laughs> um, so often, you know, what the cities and what the nonprofits and everything mean by affordable housing is, is rarely affordable. So it's, a technical, it's often a technical term and it's calculated by reference to the area median income of some region. And so, for example, the way it works in Boston is in Somerville, they passed an ordinance where any new housing development had to have 20% affordable units. Um, so you could have a giant luxury development, but then 20% of the units would have to be affordable. And what they mean by that is that the rents of those units have to be targeted to some percentage of the area median income. But the area that they use to calculate the area median income includes all these incredibly wealthy districts. So, so basically, so the, basically the point is it's not affordable for most of the actually low income people who already live in the area. That's one problem. And there's also just so few of them. I mean, they'll make these giant developments and then you'll get like 10 quote unquote affordable units. And the, the gentrification that the giant new development causes you know, it totally changes the property values of the area. So all these other landlords raise their rents and kick out their longtime tenants. Um, this whole new class of people comes in when they see that the area is getting gentrified. So you get 10 affordable units, but everywhere else in the area becomes more expensive. So yeah, affordable, <laughs> affordable housing, I think is not a helpful frame to think about what we need to be doing. And that's why we, in the LA Tenants Union, we talk about this isn't a movement for housing. This is a movement for tenants. They're, we're talking about the people who are in the particular class position rather than the units as some kind of abstract thing that we need more of. So yeah, I'd be very cautious when people, I think, I think people misuse that concept a lot. <laughs> so that, that, um, that, that brings me to my, my, my next one, which is gentrification. Yeah. So gentrification in the tenants union, we try to not use that term as much as to use the terms uh, displacement and even social cleansing. <laughs> so right to I think, it. <laughs> right to it. So gentrification, you know, I think when people think of that, they sometimes think of a kind of aesthetic thing, like the appearance of the neighborhood changing, or you start to get fancy coffee shops that all look the same with their like nice, you know, exposed brick walls or whatever. And I think when when that's the aspect of neighborhood change that's highlighted, then we're losing sight of the violence that's under that. And the violence that's under that is that, you know, what gentrification is, is basically it's the third step in a kind of investment cycle. So first, um, some place gets developed and then there's a sort of lack of investment. It's been disinvested for a long time. And then developers identify a gap between the rents that people in that area are currently making from the property and the rents that they could be making if they reinvested. So they say, like, there's an area where um, if we built this new thing, we could get in all these higher income tenants. Or if we renovated this apartment, um, we could, you know, there's we could close the gap between the rent that it's currently getting and the rent that it could be potentially getting. So basically what it is, is 
is removing low-income tenants from their long-time communities. You know, people get evicted because they can't afford the higher rents. It's just that simple. And so, and you know, I think when people, when, when that happens, it's really breaking up communities. So there's people who have lived there with their extended families over very long periods. Um, you know, they have jobs there, they have schools there, they have community institutions, and their whole way of life and their whole fabric of their communities is just being destroyed by uh, the capital that's coming in and, and seizing this place that they've poured their time and their love and their community building into over so long. So, so yeah, I think social cleansing to kind of remove, you know, remove the lower classes and remove poor people in order to put in uh, shinier, higher income tenants is really what what's happening when gentrification happens. So it seems like the agent that we're referring to are the big businesses or the entrepreneurs, the contractors, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I wonder, you know, I've been asked, thinking about this question for a while, and I don't know if I've read anything that particularly addresses it, but you know, I remember talking to a friend of mine, we had to ask ourselves, are we gentrifiers? And, and I wonder, like, yeah, how, how, do you, how, do you, how do you look at that? And, and what ways do we participate in that? What are our options out of that dilemma? Or is it is just the way that it is? Yeah, I mean, I, for the most part, try not to think of it as an individual level moral thing. You know, of course, of course, there's many kind of young professionals or young middle class people who the reason that they move to the neighborhoods they move to is it's the only places they can afford. <laughs> so it's both the case that they're gentrifiers and it's the case that they don't really have a lot of other. So I think an individual level choice like that about where to live, it, it matters a little bit, but you know it's also usually the case that if you're not moving into that new building, some other person is. So to me, that's why it's all about joining, uh, you know, recognizing that you are a tenant, recognizing that you can be in solidarity with other tenants, even if, you know, they make less money than you, or they've been there for longer than you. It's like, which side are you going to be in? Are you going to support them when they start getting evicted or not? And that's to me where the individual level moral thing is, is are you going to be in solidarity with the other people whose lives you're affecting rather than like a consumption decision about, um, about where you're going to live. I like that. I mean, it's very much connected to this, this, this next question I was going to ask ask you. So, so usually when people talk about housing crisis, uh, immediately we're thinking about our last recession. Don't know if we're going to go into one now, but we think about the 2008 recession and how that affected homeowners. But do you think, and putting the p- pandemic aside, do you think that the U.S. is currently having or has had a housing crisis sans even what happened as far as mortgages were con- is concerned? So I wonder, do you think that is the case? Um, would you term it a crisis? Would you call it something else? And then, you know, this is why I said it's connected to the last thing that you said. If indeed it is a crisis or you describe it as some other nature, what else can we do? Even if we don't live in that quote unquote gentrified neighborhood, what can we do on, a, on an individual level and institutional level to, to, to help end it? So I think, yeah, the question whether whether to use the word crisis, I think, is a really good one. I think on the one hand, obviously, there's a crisis for a ton of people, <laughs> a ton of people are paying a huge proportion of their income towards rent. So I think there's now no county in the United States where a a minimum wage worker can afford a one-bedroom apartment. That's a new fact over the past several decades. It used to not be the case that rent was such a high proportion of people's incomes. You know, there's a huge homelessness crisis. I mean, yeah, there's there's all, you know, the wait lists for public housing, the wait lists for Section 8 vouchers are unbelievably long. So 
in that sense, there is a crisis. I think the reason to resist using that word is that that suggests that there's something out of the ordinary and there's not really like Mm -hmm. housing is always in crisis for poor people. You know, there's never been a time when there hasn't been a homeless population. Uh, I mean, that's not true, but for the past, the the concept of homelessness is blah, blah, blah. We can do our scholar thing there. But um, (laughs) people you know, there's, there's a class of people for whom there's never not a housing crisis. And so in uh, the 1870s, in the Friedrich Engels writes in the housing question, the reason people are talking about a housing shortage now in 1870 is that it, it doesn't just affect the working class, but it started to affect the petty bourgeoisie too. It started to affect the middle class. So people only start talking about a crisis once it kind of affects the people it doesn't always affect the middle classes. So yeah, I think, I mean, I think you could, the, a better term might be like ongoing disaster, uh, <laughs> wow. ongoing disaster of um, the fact that we produce housing, not to shelter people, but so that other people can make a profit. Like that's the basic problem. And then you said, what can people do? Right. <laughs> that's the next right. question. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The hard question. <laughs> that's the hard question. Yeah. So I basically think like at an individual level, to me, the individual level question is like how you're going to spend your time and what organizations are going to be part of. I don't think there's much people can do. I mean, you know, the phrase that that is in my head that I try to tell my students that I brings in my head all the time is you can't do politics alone. You know, your individual level political choices just don't really matter. What matters is acting collectively with other people. And so, you know, I'll do another. If it wasn't clear by now, I think everybody who's a tenant should join a tenants union. I think people should start tenants unions in new places. I think that's, that's to me, the place where you get a solid political education and where you can stand in solidarity with other tenants and where you can build power. And, and that's, to me, the form of political action that I think is uh, most valuable. And, and I also think is most like gratifying. I mean, it's most you can spend a lot of time knocking on doors for a kind of not that exciting, quote unquote, progressive politician, but it's way, I think it's way more worthwhile to spend time building independent institutions like tenants unions and building relationships with other tenants and making things happen outside of you know, the very narrow area that we're normally told to constrain politics to. Do you think there's a connection between your organizing your work, your organizing work and your, your job as a, as a, as a philosopher? Yeah. I want you to think th- deeply about this because I remember, I, I think I have asked you this question before and you did not see. So I just heard a yes. So I'm interested. What, what is that? <laughs> what is that connection? Well, now I, now I'm more prepared because I'm speaking, <laughs> not just to you, my friend. I think, yeah, I mean, um, I think doing I think a better political philosopher, or a more thoughtful philosopher about the way politics works. So I think because I do organizing and because I think about who has power and how to change who has power, I think much more about what the point of the ideas I'm talking about is, like who the arguments are serving, um, what's the point of making the arguments, like what's my sort of audience? Am I just talking to small group of, of professional philosophers, or um, am I addressing myself to, to other people in other capacities? What the kind of political presuppositions of the arguments are, and why are those the presuppositions? So I think, you know, there's a, there's a major tendency in ac- academic philosophy to not think about who has power and different class interests. 
that's something we, you know, when we do ideal theory, when we talk about the way the world should be, philosophers often abstract away from that. And I think that that doesn't make any sense. And I think it doesn't work. There's a great paper on this that does not, that points out this problem really well called the basic income illusion by Alex Gorovich and Luka Luka Stanzik. And they basically say, you know, who's this we that we're talking about when we say like, we should do such and such. It's like, first, you need to start by thinking about what the different interests of the people in the world are and what they're willing to fight for not what's the most compelling argument, and then they're going to accept it, and then we're all going to implement it and live happily ever after. But why do people believe why, you know, how do people's interests shape the political ideas that they're accepting? And how can we maneuver in the actual world of of political power, rather than, you know, get people to accept the best argument, and then and then we'll go from there. And then I think also that being doing this organizing work has made me a better teacher because I think I'm just a year out of grad school. So I've, I haven't taught that many classes yet, but so far I've taught uh, feminist philosophy and now I'm teaching critical philosophy of race. And so I have a lot of students with some kind of incipient political feeling, but you know, we do such a bad job in general. I mean, we are in such a weird you know, in many ways, a political, I mean, in many ways, hyper politicized, but it, people don't know how to use their political power. They don't know what kind of political power they have, and they don't know how to um, exert political pressure. And, you know, I think a lot of students have this idea that what it means to be political is to vote, you know, vote every four years, or maybe if you're like really involved, you vote in the city, city council elections too. Um, And maybe to do like some social media politics stuff, and maybe to go to a protest. But there's no understanding of um, how you actually change things and how you have power and how you build power with other people and then how to wield that power effectively. And I think the, the organizing that I've done helps me think about other, other you know, broader conceptions of, of politics and broader conceptions of people's political power. And I think students find that, students find that very empowering to think that there's there's something that they can actually do because I think we do such a good job of sh- of telling people what the problems are, and such a bad job of telling people how they can do anything about them. This is there's a um, Boots Riley, <laughs> big fan of Boots. He talks about this really effectively. I think like academics and artists are really good at saying this is bad, everything's bad, and he's like everybody knows things are bad. <laughs> We're all aware that things are bad. We don't need to hear it again. What we need is for somebody to tell us here's how you can fight to make them better and. So yeah, I think I think students are are glad to be exposed to to that. Give us some recommendations. So so what what are two books either on housing or exploitation in general that you will recommend for folks as must reads? So there are many great housing books. Um, <laughs> one <laughs> there I, as far as so I actually you know hopefully I'm gonna I'm gonna start to work on housing justice more in my academic work since I spend so much time thinking about it, I really don't think there's as, it's kind of surprising that there's not more philosophical work in housing justice, but there is a great book called In Defense of Housing. You know, you might think that housing didn't need to be defended, but <laughs> it, did, right. it does. And that's by David Madden and Peter Marcuse, son of the other mm-hmm. Frankfurt School Marcuse. Mm-hmm. And then there's another book that I really like that came out recently called um, Capital City, Gentrification in the Real Estate State. And that's by Stein. And he was trained as an urban planner. And he kind of talks about the impossible 
position that urban planners are in because they're just controlled by real estate capital and they try so hard to um, make cities nice places for everyone, but they can't because of <laughs> because of who has power and how power in the city works. So those are both I would highly recommend. Them. And then you know, and then the housing question by Engels I think is is really worth reading too for anybody who's interested in housing. Who I think is one of the greatest MVPs of the previous century. Have you have you heard my rant about that? Oh, I would love to hear it again. <laughs> I, th- I thought you heard, I thought you heard the rant that I had once I saw the documentary of him and Marx, and I saw how much yeah. how much he was like the best friend ever in life. That's that's, that's my rant. Very, that's it. That, that's why he's really good. <laughs> that's a that's a that's a sidebar. That's a sidebar. That's a <laughs> yeah, no, we all wish that somebody would say um, our our illegitimate son was really there. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> For those who have no idea what we're talking about. Watch any documentary yeah. <laughs> on him and Marx's relationship. Uh, Angus was a good, a good friend, a good, a good friend and colleague. That's all. That's all I have to say without being a spoiler alert. A comrade, even. <laughs> comrade, yes, yes. Well, Rose, thank you so much for for doing this, for having this conversation with me during this pandemic time. I know it's a lot going on, so I thank you so much for spending an hour with me to kind of kind of think through these things and, and, and share your knowledge and your experience, and I really, really appreciate it. Great to talk with you, bud. Thank you for having me. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.